Good morning. All right, let's turn, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. As you turn there, it's going to be a bit of a lengthy introduction, but I hope to keep you engaged as we go through it. Well, we'll eventually get to John chapter 7. First thing I want to talk about this morning are expectations. Expectations. I think we've all had expectations. We all have expectations, don't we? Probably from our earliest memories, right? Sometimes it was waiting for dad to come home. You know, maybe he was at work all day or on a long business trip. We look forward to seeing dad come home. Maybe one of our earliest memories would be about mom and expectation. Oh, that's not, that smells like my favorite meal. Oh, I can't wait for that. Oh, that's going to be great. Looking forward to those, having those expectations, looking forward to them being fulfilled. As we grew, our expectations grew. Sometimes it would be a favorite vacation place. You know that one place you always go to and you have a certain fun there, a certain way of doing things? I was with someone uh, last week and we had to go to convention center right across from Disneyland. I had to park in Disneyland parking lot and then go to the trade show. <laughs> I mean, talk about disappointing, right? And the friend, he, he was uh, able to stay there for the, uh, for the weekend, stay there with his, his family. He said, oh, we know exactly what we're going to do. We're going to do this. We're going to do that, blah, 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 blah. He had all planned out, right? That was his expectation of what he was going to be doing. So we have expectations. Expectations of what's next. For some of you kids, it's the next grade. What's high school going to be like? What's college going to be like? Could be the starting of a relationship. Could be getting a real job. What's that going to be like? Yeah. Could be getting married. Could be having kids. Right? These are things that we look forward to expectantly. We've all had similar expectations, things we look forward to. How do they turn out, by the way? When you're really expecting something and looking forward to it, how does it turn out? Did it turn out the way you expected it? Did they meet your expectations? Well, for some of us, maybe it did. If you're like me, you learn after a certain time frame, you, you kind of tone down your expectations. Now, Tom knows I like Yosemite. We get excited about going to Yosemite, and I, I, I have to be honest, when I talk to other people about it, I pump it up pretty good. I mean, God's wonderful creation, you know, you got all, this, all your favorite people all around you, you know, and you get up and you go, go hear God's word. I mean, beat that, you know. I'm thinking heaven's going to beat it, and, and, and being with you people come second, and Yosemite's in there pretty close. But I try to lower my expectations. Maybe someone will get hurt. Maybe we won't be able to make it. Maybe we'll have to leave early. You know? So I lower my expectations. So I don't get disappointed. That's cheating, isn't it? It's cheating. Because you have high expectations, right? And you just lower them on purpose. But really, they're high. You want it to be good. You see? Because you have high expectations. I think most of us have basic expectations like that. We have things in our lives that we want to see. We have wants. 
We have desires in our lives. Things that we would expect to see fulfilled in our lives. As a matter of fact, I think, and this is a bit of a challenge to everyone here this morning, that by the time this message is over, I think I would have covered the basic expectations, the basic wants in your life. So as you hear my, vo- hear my voice this morning, think, maybe write it down, I'll jot it down real quick if you like, or at least in your own mind, think, here, here's what I really need. And I'm not talking about frivolous things, I'm not talking about a, you know, a new boat or a new house or new whatever. I'm talking about really important things, things that are going to matter in 100 years, things you really want, okay? And I bet you by the time this message is over, we would have covered those things. But these basic expectations are, are, or wants are often not met. Often for various reasons. Sometimes it's simple reasons. Maybe they're too high in the first place. But through our experience, we have high expectations and things fall flat. They fall short of what we were expecting. Can you relate to this? Does that happen to you? Can you describe your life like that? Sometimes it happens in religious things. I'm sure that many of you came this morning with some type of expectation of the message. Now, I've spoken to the preacher. He forwards his apologies for any expectations he might not meet this morning that you might have of him. Not that he apologizes for the message, but for the weakness of the preacher. Well, but before we talk any more about expectations and what you really want out of life, I'm going to take you on a history trip. We're going to go back around, around 2,000 years in history. We're going to look at a famous, a very well-known religious event. At least it was very well-known to the people who had it. They had great expectations for it. The place is Jerusalem. It's the one place in all the world that the one true living God, if I could say this reverently, said he would hang his hat. He said, I'm going to be here in Jerusalem. You want to find me, find me here. This is my city, specifically his temple in Jerusalem. And what's the event? The event is called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, again, I'm going to give you a little bit of the background of what we're going to read this morning, and then we'll get to the passage eventually. Though there are a few feasts that the Jews were um, commanded to come back to, this Feast of Tabernacles is called the Feast. It's, it's the greatest one. It's the largest one. It happened in early autumn after the harvest and included Jews from c- coming from all over the world to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate it. So just think if you were going to do this trip for the first time. Maybe you were just a, a young kid who was just old enough to get to go for the first time. You're making that pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. It could be as far away as Persia. Spain, but you're going to be back to Jerusalem for the feast. Okay? Coming back to Jerusalem. What would you see? Well, in this Feast of Tabernacles, as you, as you start to get close to Jerusalem, you'd see these little, looks like little teepees or little tents. These little stand-up things. Okay? About big enough for one person. You see that? And that God had commanded that. He said, I want you to build these little 
individual little tent things, and I want you to dwell in them. Because I want you to remember how I took you out of Egypt. And I like the way one, per- one person put it. It was camping with God. That's really what it was. He took them out of the land of Egypt. And they camped with God. But as you approach Jerusalem, you would see these little dwelling places. And you have to find a place to stay yourself because you're not from there. And if you found a place to stay, when you found a place to stay, you would also build your own little tabernacle, your own little tent-like thing. It was usually made out of palm branches. It was very simple. You would see them all over Jerusalem at this time. What else would you see? Well, as you got inside Jerusalem, you'd be inside this, the city, you'd eventually see the temple. Wow, that would be awe-inspiring. Just a huge, incredible building. And what you would see coming up from the temple as the week started, it was a week. The feast, by the way, took a week. It wasn't a one-day holiday. It was a whole week. And what you would see is you would see the smoke just coming out from the temple as they offered sacrifices. And they would be offered on the, 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 the altar for the whole burnt offering. It was an altar. It's not something like this. It's not like a barbecue or anything. It's seven and a half feet wide by seven and a half feet long, square. Okay, so it's over 50 feet square footage. Big enough to offer a bull on. And that week, they would offer 182 animals and 70 bulls. So the smoke is just coming up constantly from the temple. And as one participating in the feast, you have a, a bouquet, as it were. Now, it's not real fancy flowers or anything like it. It's a bouquet of branches. And God commanded this. He wanted you to have a, uh, a branch from the palm tree, the willow, and the myrtlewood. And then you'd be holding that as part of the way you would celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles. So... As you're approaching this feast, maybe it's meeting your expectations. Maybe you're awe-inspired. As you go through the week, maybe, like so many other religious observances that have been plagued by men's traditions, maybe you're left wanting. Maybe you feel like, you know, this is good, and it's good to remember the Lord. But there's something missing here. There's got to be something more. Then on that last day, that great day of the feast, it was called the great day because it had special ceremonies, had something special to it. Though the sacrifices were reduced, the group that met at the tabernacle, that met, excuse me, met at the temple, was split into three groups. The first group would stay there and watch the priest prepare the sacrifices for that morning. A second group would go off and gather some branches, some palm branches, and bring it back, some willow branches actually, and bring them back and adorn the altar, making a canopy-like structure around the altar. So then there's the third group, and that's the group you're in. You would be following a priest, and he would have an empty pitcher, not very big, about as big as a liter, hold about a liter of water. And he'd be... In a procession, he would take that empty pitcher from the, from the temple and he would go all the way down 
to the pool of Siloam that was fed from a spring, or as they like to say, living waters. Okay? It would just pop up out of the ground, fed eventually down to the pool of Siloam, and he would go down, and he would, with, and there's music and trumpets going on the whole time, he would get a pitcher of water, and he would bring it back to the temple. And you're in this procession, right? Because you've got your palm branches, you're following along, and this is your religious duty, your religious activity. As they made their way back to the temple, they would try to time it so that when they get there, this pitcher of water would be coming through what's called the water gate. I mean, that's what they, water door, that's what they had for the temple. Okay? So it would come in, and right then, that's when the other priests would be putting the sacrifice on the altar for the first time. And that, as it were, water priest would join another priest who had the drink offering and they would come to the side of the altar and pour it down into funnels and then it would steam up and be offered up to God. Okay? little history on the Feast of Tabernacles. This is on the last day, the great day of the feast. After the water was poured, the whole congregation would repeat, would, would, would recite Psalms 113 to 118. The priest would say the first verse. He would say, give thanks to the Lord. And the whole congregation would say, give thanks to the Lord. And he would say the next line. And they would say, hallelujah. Okay, and then he would say the next line. And he would say, hallelujah. And that's what, how they would say it, back and forth. The priest would say it, and they would say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Okay, and that's how they did that morning sacrifice, how they introduced it. But it's interesting. On the last psalm, it wasn't just the first line that the people repeated. It's not even just the last, it's not the first verse or the last verse. Not the first line or the last line, but right around verse 25 out of 29. People don't say hallelujah, they, they repeat what the priest says, and it's this. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Then they would say, oh, give thanks to the Lord, and the priest would say that, and the people would say it. It's interesting. That one verse is different. And on each of the preceding days, after the, the, the ceremonies were done towards the end, the priest would walk around the, the altar saying that same verse. Save now, O Lord. O Lord, send now prosperity. He would say it once. But on the great day of the feast, he said it seven times. Then when that was done, on the last day, seventh day, the priest went around seven times and said that, and the whole congregation would, they would shake their little bouquets and be celebrating, being thankful for what the Lord has done in their lives and the provisions he's given them. Then they would go and take down their little tents that they made, little booze, little tabernacles, and they would go home. They'd make preparations to go home. So there you are. You're part of that congregation you went through this whole thing. And maybe everything about this religious ceremony has met your expectations. Maybe it hasn't. Maybe you're there and you're saying those words. Save now, O Lord. O Lord, send now prosperity. 
And you're thinking, yeah, Lord, save me. Send a good life because I don't have a good life. And you want something more than just that religious activity. You're saying, Lord, deliver me from the mess of my life. I need to see real prosperity, a really good life. I know that you've made me for more, but I experience so much less. There's more out there. I know that there is, but I don't experience it. It's right at this time, as you and the whole congregation have cried out to the Lord for his salvation and for a blessed life, the branches have been waved and shaken. There's only the, the finishing activities to do. The crowd's about to disperse and go take down their, their little tabernacles. And that's where we find ourselves in John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You could hear that coming from a different part of the temple. Everything was going over here at the altar. Then you hear this voice crying out. You see, Jesus wasn't interrupting the day's activities. You know what Jesus was doing? He was fulfilling the day's activities. All those religious people going through the motions of another year's religious activities and holidays needed something more. They said, Lord, save us. Give us a life that's worth living. And what is he saying? God has heard you. I am here. I am the only one who can bring you fulfillment. I'm the only one who can save you and make your life what it ought to be. I am the only one who can meet and exceed all your expectations. I can take care of all your wants that you've ever had in your life. And again, we mean the real ones, not the frivolous ones, not the foolish ones, the real ones. Do you thirst for more than you have experienced? Then come to me and find your fulfillment. I can give it to you. Did you know that that's what Jesus wants for your life? People, and Satan's done a masterful job. People think of Jesus as a killjoy. It can be further, further from the truth. Jesus wants you to have an incredibly blessed life. A life worth living. He says it later, and a few chapters later, the thief comes not but to kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life. And they might have it more abundantly. That doesn't sound like a killjoy to me. That sounds like some good living there. 
There is an enemy out there. He hates your very soul. First, he wants to steal away the best parts about your life that you could be enjoying. Then he wants to kill you by distracting you with other things and wrong ways to fill the void. And then after that, he wants to see you destroyed, separated from your creator for all eternity. But why did Jesus come? He came to give you a life, and that more abundantly, a heart overflowing. That is the life of Jesus. We're talking about his life. He lived the best life there ever was. It was a good life. No sin in it, no downside to it. Now, Jesus offers that life to you. So if you're here this morning, I want you to think about that. If you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I want you to think about that this morning. He's offering you an abundant life. A life you can, I can tell you right now, you couldn't even imagine. It is so good. It comes from him. It's not coming from me. It comes from him. But there's one catch. What we're going to talk about here, there's one catch. Whatever Jesus says to you, you have to be willing to do it. You have to be willing to do it. Jesus says, if anyone wills to do his will, God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. Whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. What is Jesus saying? If you're willing to do what I'm going to tell you, then I'll change your life. But you have to be willing to make that step. Someone call, some, some people call it a blind leap of faith. There's nothing blind about it. We're going to talk about it. There's nothing more sure in the world. Why? Not because Charlie said so at 11.45 on Sunday morning. It's because Jesus says so. We're going to look at it. Even his enemies testified to how truthful he was. You have to be willing to do whatever he tells you to do. That's the key. So if you're willing to do that, then we can talk about how Jesus can meet the biggest expectations in your life. I don't know if you did that little list. I hope some of you did. I'd like to see if I'd like to see come up to me later if I miss something. I'd like to add it to my list because Jesus meets the greatest needs in your life. About four or five things, depending on how you number them. What are people? What do people want? What are their biggest needs? Their biggest expectations? First one: peace. People want peace. I'm already starting to see some heads nod. People want peace. Listen to this. The Society of International Law in London states that during the last 4,000 years, there have been only 268 years of peace, in spite of good peace treaties. (laughs) You know what that averages out to be? Less than 7%. We're 90% at war as a world. In the last 300 years, there were 286 wars just in Europe. Just in Europe. 
But we're not concerned about that, are we? Not as much. Well, peace is a good thing to care for. But what are we looking for? We're looking for peace here. If you have peace in your heart, if you have inner peace. Personal inner peace, inner joy. What are we talking about? We're not talking about temporary peace. You can get that from a pipe. You can get that from a needle. You'll have peace for a short period of time. Right? You can get it from a bottle. And for a short period of time, you'll have a little bit of peace. And then what? It's gone. And then you're back to where you were before. With no peace. The only thing you got to show for it is what? A racked body. A bad liver. Right? We're not talking about the temporary peace of other activities. You know, we can go hiking. You go tracking out to Yosemite. Go on a long bike ride. Go for a nice run. Don't you feel good afterwards, especially being out in creation? But it's temporary. It's just not enough. Makes you want more. Makes you want more. It's not the pseudo piece of religious exercise or church activities, a time of meditation. Again, these are only temporary. And if they're not based on the truth, they're shallow. They're not deep. They're not real. What's a true and lasting peace? A true and lasting peace weathers the storms of life. A true and lasting peace is there no matter what hits you from the outside. It's permanent. It's deep. And it's fulfilling. Jesus offers this peace. How do I know it's permanent and deep and fulfilling? It's because it's his peace. He says, my peace I give to you. You see? And that's the peace he has. It's lasting and it has depth. It's built on truth. Why? Because it's first first based on having peace with God. Because there's nothing more important you need to have settled than having peace with God. My old co-worker, we were walking down the hallway together and she said, you don't seem to be bothered by a lot of this stuff. I said, you know, when you got the bigger questions that answered, a lot of this stuff really isn't that big of a deal. I can't say as I've always had that disposition, but I'm glad I did that day. Because it's the truth. Knowing that the God who has all power, wisdom, and love is in charge of the situation, what do I need to worry about? I have a personal relationship with him. What do I need to worry about? I can have peace. What's beyond inner peace? Certain hope beyond death. People want to have an inner peace now. You know what they want? Part of that? They want to have a certain hope beyond death. Many like to see the world's religions as as a picture of a, uh, a mountain, right? You know, your religion's over here, my religion's over here, and we're all going to the same spot. We'll all get to the top. We're all going in the right direction, you know, and it all leads to the same place. We're just going there from different directions. Does that look like what we're doing? 
Does it all seem like we're ascending and getting better if things are going in the right direction? Remember the part about 93% wars? Most of those are religious-based, by the way. Still, many see the need for certainty beyond death. It's of the utmost importance. Listen to this story that I came across about Leonid Brezhnev's wife. As Vice President George Bush represented the U.S. at the funeral of former Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev. If those of you who don't know who might be younger, he was, the, he was the leader of the Communist Party, an incredible atheist, and a leader of a, of a movement uh, to wipe out God. Bush was deeply moved by a silent protest carried out by Brezhnev's widow. She stood motionless by the coffin until seconds before it was closed. Then, just as the soldiers touched the lid, Brezhnev's wife performed an act of great courage and hope, a gesture that must surely rank as one of the most profound acts of civil disobedience ever committed. She reached down and made the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. There, in the citadel of secular, atheistic power, the wife of the man who had run it who had run it all, hoped that her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life and that the life was best represented by Jesus who died on the cross. And that the same Jesus might yet have mercy on her husband. Certainly beyond death is to be secured at, at great lengths. He'll drive people to incredible things. We've all been uh, made aware of Muslim suicide bombers. And we're appalled at the fact that they would kill so many people. Let's look at a suicide bomber. I'm not condemning their actions, don't get me wrong. But listen to what Islam says. You need to pray so many times a day. You've got to pray in the right way, in the right direction. You need to make it out to Mecca. Um, you need to keep the fast of Ramadan, and I'm sure I'm missing a few other things that you must do. And if you do that, you might make it into heaven as a Muslim. You see? Ah, but what do they tell the suicide bomber? Oh, if you're willing to self-sacrifice, guaranteed. You, remember, so you delineate. Hmm. Now we see another side of those bombers. Not that they're right, believe me. But what do they want to do? To secure that. But for many, religion is not even that serious. For, for many, religion is kind of strange. It's like art. You know what I mean? It's like art. You know? Well, I believe this way and you believe that way. You know, it's like seeing those paintings at the modern art art store, you know? Looks like a couple of three monkeys had a paint fight or something. This one looks like a bunch of seagulls walked all over it, you know, with the paint on their feet. And you got people standing back going, wow, yeah. I really like that. It's really warm. You know, it makes me feel just, yeah, you know? And on the other side, you know, well, I'm not sure, yeah. And that's how people think about religion. 
They think, well, you have your religion, I have my religion. You know, it's just, just not the same. Right? But does that art change your life? It doesn't. It doesn't change your life. And neither is people's false religions. You ever notice that? Well, I just believe what I believe, and I go to church, and it makes me feel warm for a little while, and I go home. And nothing's changed. And that's not the truth. The truth of Jesus is based on facts. Those facts say this. You can know for sure. I write these things to you that you may know you have eternal life. The truth is based on facts, life-changing facts. And that first, first life-changing fact is the reality of salvation. You can know for sure you're going to heaven. Does anybody here have that? Amen? And then after that, it leads to the fact of a changed life throughout your life. Like the way one brother put it, it's one thing if, you, if I give you the keys, Michael... And say, here, you can borrow my car. Go ahead, no problem. You know? Oh, by the way, it doesn't have any gas in it. <laughs> it's another thing if I give you the keys and I say, guess what? I got this one for you. I got this one for you. Here, take all this. Take all that. Here, get some gas. You see? What does that do? <laughs> you can get, well, on this, yeah, who knows how much, maybe a quarter of a tank on that, but these days. That's what God does. That's what the truth does. He not only gives you the car, He gives you the gas. Oil, tires, everything. It's all included for a changed life. Not a religion you show up, get warm and fuzzy, and go home the same. That's not the truth. That's not Jesus. Inner peace, certainty. Certain hope after death. What else do people want? Everyone wants to make sense of their troubles. We all do. When you go through a hard time, what's the first question that comes to your mind? Why? Why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this going on? Well, there's certain principles that are true that we can relate to. Did you know that you, well, most of us, maybe all of us in this room, that we periodically and voluntarily go to a place and have ourselves inflicted with pain. And then we pay for it. Okay? He gets a needle that's this big, right? And he says, say, ah, Right? And he goes, starts going in there. We pay to go to the dentist. <laughs> Why would we do something like that? One simple reason. You would rather have that tough scraping, that tough cleaning, that polishing, that inconvenience, that little bit of pain, what? To avoid the greater pain. There's greater pain out there. And you know, I, you know, I better go get a checkup. And then some of us don't, and we pay for it, don't we? You see? There. Better to take the pain now, a little pain now, that gets your attention than the greater pain later. And God knows something else about us. He knows if God doesn't exert pressure on us, what? We don't move. Generally speaking, we don't move. It's kind of sad. You think, well, that's really better for you. Yeah, I'm sure it is. You know, we're comfortable where we're at. 
right? God is saying, no, you need to move, okay? Don't get me wrong. The evil that goes, goes on in your life doesn't come from God. Read the first couple of chapters of Genesis. We blew it. God made everything perfect. We're the ones who blew it. So well, that was Adam and Eve. I guarantee you, you were there, you would do it yourself. We blew it. God wonderfully takes that evil that comes in our lives and he says, now I'm trying to get your attention. I know this hurts, but better a little pain now that gets you moving than a lot of pain later. You see? What is that trouble? That trouble's a friend. That trouble's actually a friend. What is God trying to do? God puts us, he puts the pressure on us. What we call it, we call it turn up the heat, right? Why? What's he want us to do? Well, what, what do you like in those hard times? Are you in your best behavior, dressing your Sunday best and grinning from ear to ear and waving a high and happy to everybody? I don't know about you, but it's in the hard times where it shows what I'm really like on the inside. And that's all God wants. He wants us to be honest. Just be honest. He already knows. He wants you to be honest. That's hard, isn't it? We don't want to be honest with God. But if we will be honest with God and we say, I am that dirty, rotten sinner. I am the one who's messed up their life. I am not fulfilled. I don't have these things. Jesus, you have them and I don't. And I see it's because of the decisions I've made in my life. I would not let me into heaven. If it were me, I wouldn't let me into heaven. So I'm sure you wouldn't either. There, I've said it. The truth is out. Be honest. Be honest with God. You know what? That's what this church is. This isn't a church of a bunch of really great people who are working hard to try to get to heaven. Uh-uh. This is, a per, this is a church of a bunch of sinners. Any amens from people here? Amen. amen. We're a bunch of sinners. And you can't come to church here thinking it's going to make you good enough to go to heaven. You could sooner go to Burger King. Walk into Burger King and bam, you're going to turn into a Whopper. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's not what this church is for. The believers here know this, we can't make ourselves good enough to go to heaven. It doesn't work that way. If the Lord has led you to be honest about who you are through hard times in your life, then there, there's your answer. You're trying to make sense of your troubles? That's your best and first answer. God is trying to get your attention. Be honest. Be honest with him. Yeah, Lord, I've blown it. And I need you. Cry out to him for mercy. That makes troubles. Your, your, those are your friends. Those aren't your enemies. You should be thankful. It causes us to think about eternity. Inner peace. Certainty. Certain hope after death. An explanation for our troubles. What else are we looking for? 
Have I caught anybody's list yet? Am I covering them? It's not me. It's the word of God. That's how I know. This is, this is, this is who Jesus is. Unconditional love. It's unconditional love. What are we looking for? It's unconditional love. We all look for a secure love. Someone who we can be completely honest with and what? They love us anyway. We spend most of our time, most of our lives keeping back. And it's deadly if you do it to the Lord. It's deadly if you say, no, Lord, uh uh-uh. Jesus says, be honest with me. You've not met my standards or yours. Your life hasn't satisfied you, and it hasn't pleased me either. Your life has not measured up to what you thought it would. Failed plans, the longings of your heart, you can't meet them. You can't satisfy them. Then he tells you what? Venture it all on me. Jesus says, give it all to me. Come honestly to me. And I'll give you that life that you, that you desire. The life you could never give. I'll give it to you. Let me ask you a question. Can you trust someone who died for you? And if you can't trust someone who died for you, who can you trust, right? And that was one of the reasons he died for you. Is it so you could trust him? Even his enemies testified of him. <laughs> you know, the religious leaders, they sent the guards down there, and the guards are there, they're listening to Jesus. They went back, and the leaders are all, why are you coming back empty-handed? Where's Jesus? They said, you don't know. No one's ever taught like this man. You know? He taught as one having authority. It was God speaking in the flesh. You can trust him. Whatever he says to you to do, you can do it. And you can find him trustworthy. Even his enemies realized how well he spoke. They didn't trust him. They couldn't deny it. I love one of the best accusations against Jesus. Oh, look at him. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Hey, great. I love it. That means I qualify. What does that mean? He's my friend. He's my friend. You can trust him. He is. If you're honest and you're that sinner, he's your friend. You can trust him. Even the Roman governor, as unbelieving as could be, pagan, cross-examines him. Says what? I find no fault in him. You're not going to find a fault in Jesus. Perfect. (laughs) We should line up and and spend nights and days just to meet someone like that. And he wants to have a personal relationship with you. Someone who's perfect. That's incredible. Even the centurion at the end who watched Jesus die. Even in his death. What does he say? Truly, this was the Son of God. What does Jesus say to you this morning? If you will be honest with me, I will love you anyway. I will love you anyway. That's what happened to the woman at the well, right? Remember when she go back and tell the city? 
Hey, come here, man. Tell me everything I ever did. It's like, would you want to really talk about that out loud? You know? But she had gotten honest. She didn't care anymore. Jesus knew everything about her and offered himself to her anyway. And she had been looking for love in all the wrong places. You know, she was that proverbial woman who was looking for Mr. Right and married her husband instead. And then she did that four more times until she got to the end finally said, ah, forget it, let's just live together. This doesn't work. That's who she was. But guess what? She found Mr. Right. I had a story like that. I was uh, walking into work years ago. Secretary saw the gleam in my eye. And she said, okay, what's going on? What's her name? And uh, some of you know the story. I caught her off guard in a big way. I said, hmm. I said, it's not a her, it's a him. She went, what? <laughs> I said, it's Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus. And she goes, oh, okay. But really, that's who he is. That's who he is. That's what the woman at the well found out. She was honest and Jesus loved her anyway. He is that perfect man who loves you at your worst. At your worst. He already sees it. He's just asking you to be honest about it. Years ago, President Bush used to talk about getting rid of all the evildoers. What would happen if we got rid of all the evildoers? The whole world would be wiped out. <laughs> you know, we can't get rid of all the evildoers. You know, I had a, a friend who came from Israel. He was one of my suppliers, and he was asking me. He, he could tell that I was religious. And he said, well, I've got to allow all this evil. I said, where would you like him to start? If he starts with you and me, we're in, a big, we're in big trouble. I don't want him to start doing that. God is long-suffering. He is trying to reach the evildoers. That's you and me. He knows what's going on. He knows what's in our hearts. The things that we don't want. We don't, we don't want to walk around. If you have a problem being honest or you don't think there's any big deal, then, then do me a favor. I got right back here on the shelf. I got this little digital device. I can put it on your forehead, and it's going to display everything you're thinking. Just wear it for a week. And see if you can. Anybody volunteering for that one? Believe me, no, you don't want to do it. <laughs> He's calling my bluff. You wouldn't want it, would you? No, you don't. But God sees it. He knows it. He just wants you to be honest. But it's not enough just to talk about it. You've got to say it's wrong. Turn from it and turn to him. He wants us to stop trying to justify ourselves. Yeah, I had an incident of that recently, just trying to justify myself, the way I was doing things, the way I was saying things. Don't you see that I'm right? And they're obviously wrong. You know what you can just about guarantee when you had that line of thinking? You're wrong. <laughs> just about guaranteed. 
at least in attitude, if not in facts. Stop justifying ourselves and men are guilty against God. God would pardon us. Can the governor pardon the guy who's not in prison? No. You ain't pardoned from God. You've got to be, you've got to be a sinner. And if you're just too good, well, get that digital device and wear that for a week then. We are condemned already. Listen to this. This is the heart of the story. This is amazing. We were condemned already. Jesus comes at just the right time. He wrote the law. It totally condemned us and shows us that for the sinners that we are. It condemns us, and it's a death penalty. Not just separation from God now in a miserable life, but separation for all eternity. That's the truth. All eternity separated from God. And Jesus comes. And what does he say? I know what you're like on the inside. And I'm willing to pay your debt. I will go take that penalty for you. Now we can be what's called in the Bible justified. Declared righteous. Did you know I'm righteous? Not in and of myself. God declares me righteous. That gives me a right standing before him. Not because I'm a good person, done a bunch of good things. I am in Christ, declared righteous. I have the righteousness of Christ. That's what God offers. And that's what Jesus offers. So you're justified by blood. There was a price to be paid. He paid it with his blood. Justified by faith. That's the empty hand reaching out to God saying, thank you. I see what Jesus did, and I see he did it for me. I'm the sinner for whom Christ died. Not by merit, but by an act of the will, submitting to Jesus as your only hope of heaven, receiving him. Let me ask you a question. What do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? Fully come to Jesus. The scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Paul said it this way. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It always works. You know anything like that? Always works. The gospel always works. Without fail. Everyone who comes to God through Christ gets saved. Always works. Last thing, secret of true happiness. That's what people are looking for. How can I be, how can I be sure of the secret of true happiness? Jesus said this, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Inner peace. Certainty of hope after death, making sense of our tri- making sense of our trials. I want to say it wrong. Unconditional love, the secret true happiness. There it is. You're made to know God. You say, well, that sounds boring, Charlie. <laughs> you don't know the God I know. The God I know made flowers, and butterflies, and the ocean. And Yosemite, he, he, made, he made stars and 
coming out by the moon. There's a planet over there and, and nebula and, and galaxies. That's the God I know. He's not boring. The secret of true happiness is knowing God. That's what you were made for. And you will never be truly happy until you come in that relationship with him. Do you know anyone that the more you spend time with them, the better it gets? I'm sorry, it's not going to work for me. The more you spend time with me, the more of the sinner you're going to see that I am. The more you spend time with Jesus, the better it gets. He's the reason why you're here. He likes you. He's loyal. He designed you. He made you. He knows what he has in mind for you and to fulfill what he has in mind for you. He's the most wonderful person in the universe. Who do we see Jesus? We see Jesus showing the Father. We see him weeping at funerals. We see him going way out of his way for someone else. We see him as the father of the prodigal looking for that son, waiting for him to return. What does God want? He just wants us to stop arguing. Stop excusing ourselves. We need to admit that we are the sinner for whom Christ died. He, in the scriptures, he's called the desire of all nations. But we look for love in the wrong places. It's in Jesus. And you're not going to be satisfied until you find it in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do want to thank you. We do want to thank you for who you are. We thank you that there was one who could stand up and say this. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of him will flow rivers of living water. Lord, I thank you for the truth of what this is. I thank you for anyone who's here who doesn't have that life-changing relationship with you. That they can come to you today. They can close their eyes and in their mind's eyes see you face to face and receive you. I pray you would work in their hearts, open their eyes, and have them see who they really are before you and who you really are that they might receive you and receive that abundant life you have for them. And Lord, for those of us who know you, who know you, Lord, we just say thank you. Lord, there is, there is nothing like knowing you. You are the best. You are the one, the only one who gives that inner peace, that certainty of hope after death, that unconditional love who makes sense of all our trials. Lord, we thank you. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you this morning. I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.